0: Good morning, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 2 and 3, we'll begin this morning by reading verses 2 through 5, so if you would as you're finding your place there, let's stand together. Those of you who are watching via live stream, I would encourage you to stand as well out of reverence for God's Word. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, Father, we are obviously living in extraordinary times and in circumstances that we could not have foreseen a few weeks ago. We take comfort in the fact that you are unchanging and that not only did you foresee the things in which we find ourselves in now, but you have brought them about, and that you are controlling them, that you are doing so for our good. We not only recognize these things, but we are thankful for them. We pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word this morning, most of us separated physically from one another. You would help us to keep in mind that we are one in the spirit. And though we are in separate places, we are united by your spirit and we are studying your word together. We pray that you would fill our hearts with rejoicing as we do so. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do in us what he does every week, and that is that he would open the scriptures to us, that he would help us to understand your word rightly, that he would help us to see our own hearts rightly, and that he would move us to apply the word rightly and joyfully, and that he would stir up in us greater affection for the Lord Jesus and for your gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus himself, your son and our brother. Amen. Please be seated. What are the top five things for which you are thankful? The top five things for which you are thankful. I have have the results of a survey with me this morning, that asked that very question of Americans. And the interesting thing about these top five things for which Americans are thankful is that this survey was done long before anybody heard anything about COVID-19. What's striking is that I believe that these top five things would still be the top five things for which people are thankful on this side of COVID-19, but perhaps we would just be more thankful for them. So as as I list these top five things, I want you to think first of all. To, first of all, ask yourself: Can I identify with this thing? And then, secondly, do I think that this would still be in the top five even after this pandemic has taken place? Okay. So, number one, the health of our families. Anybody thankful for the health of your family today? Perhaps more so than a month ago, right? Yes. Number two. Our family relationships in general. Our family relationships in general. Now, now there, there's a lot of joking going on online about how some of us are going stir crazy because we're spending nothing but time with our families these days. And so we're, we're joking about how the fact, about the fact that man, we would give anything to, to get, get some alone time. But that, that is a joke, right? I mean, we're very thankful that we have one another during, during this difficult time. The third thing. Now think about this one. This is striking. Thankful for technology that makes it easier to stay in touch with people. Now that was given prior to COVID-19, but on this side of it, think about that. Those of you who are watching via live stream, are you thankful for technology that makes it easier to stay in touch with people? My, My wife has had virtual coffee with four or five people this week. She's very thankful for this technology. Number four is related. It's related to that. But, but people were thankful for good technology being easily accessible. This technology is easily accessible. In other words, you don't have to be a millionaire to have the kind of technology that allows you to stay close to, to people. It's kind of ironic that these days that some of us don't have toilet paper, but we at least have an old TV and a fire stick and an internet connection. Everybody has at least that. The fifth thing, your personal financial situation. Thankful for your personal financial situation. Now that one may fall off the list, but there definitely are going to be a lot of people thinking, man, I'm glad I didn't go on that vacation, or I'm glad I put away a little bit of money. Indeed, even in these uncertain times, we have have much to thank God for. And this morning, because God has brought this text in front of us, we're going to focus on the content of our thanksgiving we're going to use the Apostle Paul as our example. The Apostle Paul was a very thankful man. We find this throughout his letters. He usually begins his letters with at least a few verses of thanksgiving. We saw last week that this Thessalonian church was under great persecution. And so Paul was very concerned about them, concerned that they would remain in the faith under this heavy weight of persecution. So when he finds that they're, that they're not only still in the faith, but they're thriving in the faith, Well, he didn't just begin this letter with this customary two or three verses of thanksgiving, but instead what we find in 1 Thessalonians is three chapters of thanksgiving. And it is instructive to pay close attention to the content of that thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving begins in verses 2 and 3. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 again. The Apostle Paul writes, we, speaking of himself and Sylvanus and Timothy, we give thanks To God always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For what does Paul thank God? He thanks God for the Thessalonians. And so like like the, the top things for which Americans are thankful for, Paul is thankful for relationships. His thanksgiving is attached to people almost always as we read his letters. But what specifically is Paul thankful for in the lives of the Thessalonians? Specifically, we find he is thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about what what our top five might be, certainly it is legitimate to thank God for things like the health of our family members. It is legitimate to thank God for things like the technology that allows us to to stay in touch with one another. We, We thank God for everything because God is the source of every good thing. But if we thank God for those kinds of things to the exclusion of thanking God for work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the lives of other believers, then the fact that Paul does express thanksgiving for those kinds of things may be all the more striking to us. So this morning, I would like for us to be guided by three questions. And it's actually one question just asked three times. So I want, to, I want to give you that one question that we're going to ask three times. Here, here it is, or here they are, however you want to think of it. First of all, why does Paul thank God for these things? Secondly, Why does Paul thank God for these things? And third, why does Paul thank God for these things? Why does Paul thank thank God for these things? Why does Paul thank God for these things? And why does Paul thank God for these things? In a nutshell, here's where those questions are going to lead us. Working faith, laboring love, and persevering hope are gracious markers of salvation for which we should thank God. Now we're going to take those questions one at a time and the answers to those questions will be the main points of the message and we will derive application from those answers. So first of all, why does Paul thank God for these things? There are many things that he could be thankful for. Why does he specifically thank the Lord for these things? The answer to that question is that Paul thanks God for these things because they are gracious markers of salvation. They are gracious markers of salvation. We read Paul's letters. We we know that preaching the gospel was his life. He tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is, is the good news of all that God has done in Jesus Christ to redeem sinners who hated Him and hated one another and to transform them into saints who love God and love one another. Now, we, we we must ask, what did we as sinners need to be redeemed from? The answer to that question is we needed to be redeemed from sin and its penalty, death. We needed to be redeemed from sin and its penalty, death. We, we tend to think of sin most, most often as bad things that we do, or good things that we don't do, and certainly that's that's a biblical way of of thinking of the word sin. However, a, a fuller understanding of of the word sin and the way that the Bible uses it is it's not just the things that we do, but more fundamentally, sin is a condition of the heart. When, when Adam committed the very first act of rebellion against God in Genesis three, he acquired a heart condition. That is, he 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 acquired this propensity to rebel against God. And every single one of us, we all inherited this from Adam so that from our conception we have this inborn desire to reject God. We have this inborn desire to reject His righteous rule over us. We have a natural desire to turn away from worshiping Him and to worship created things instead. We desire to do our own thing for our own glory. So the evil things that we do, which we call sins, come from this heart condition, which we call sin. Now, why is sin such a big deal? Why why is this a problem? The problem is that sin separates us from God. And because we have fallen minds and fallen hearts, we might not understand why that's a big deal. Why is it a big deal that we have been separated from God? The reason that's a problem is that we were created by God We were designed by God to flourish only in fellowship with Him. And and so we cannot be what we were intended to be, what we were designed to be, apart from life with Him. Humans, Human beings trying to flourish outside of God's design, that is, trying to flourish outside of fellowship with Him, well, it's like trying to heat your bath water with with a toaster. That's not what toasters were designed for. And only bad things happen when you use a toaster that way. Very similarly, we were only designed to flourish within God's God's intent that we have fellowship with Him. And, and sin prevents that. That's why being, being separated from God is a problem. Only bad things can happen in the human existence because... Sin has separated us from God. It has separated us from fellowship with God. It's a terrible thing. We can only malfunction. Worse, our sin is so offensive to the holiness of God and God is so perfectly righteous that He brings justice upon every sin. The only justice commensurate with the offensiveness of our sin is God's own omnipotent eternal wrath. The Bible teaches us that that justice is meted out in a place called hell. It's a place of horrible, just suffering. And it is what awaits us on the other side of the grave. So sin costs us. It costs us greatly. It costs us fellowship with God, the horror of which we don't really comprehend. And it also brings upon us His wrath the horror of which we also do not comprehend. And we cannot save ourselves from this judgment because we can't change our own hearts. Jeremiah 13.23 is worth writing down. Jeremiah 13.23 reads this way. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Saying you, you can't do something that goes against your heart, your heart is evil. And Jesus, Jesus goes down that same road when in Mark 7, verses 21 and 22, he says, From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Out of our hearts that all of these sins come, these sins that condemn us before God. And we can't change our own hearts, and so in ourselves we are absolutely doomed. But if you look at your, your Bible there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and you scan to the very end of chapter 1, we find Paul writing about Jesus, that he is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath to come. That's fantastic news. But how does he do it? Well, Jesus, God's eternal son, he left heaven and took on human flesh. To do what we could not do. That is, he perfectly obeyed the Father his entire life. He earned, he earned a spotless record of righteousness before God. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's got a perfect record before the Father. And yet, even though he was sinless, Jesus also died a sinner's death On the cross. What does that mean? It means that even though Jesus never sinned, God poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross and He died there. You see, the the, the Bible teaches in many places that that Jesus lived and died as a substitute for sinners. He, He stands in our place. He lived perfectly so that the righteous requirement of God's law might be fulfilled on our behalf. And then on the cross He died so that the wrath of God might be satisfied for our sin. He, he is a substitute for us. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6, so that we might put on the righteousness of Christ, Galatians three twenty seven. And on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay our sins and kill our death, and that Jesus has the right then to give His righteousness to whomever He pleases. He gives His righteousness, His eternal life, and He reconciles sinners to God. An important question for for everyone on this planet is is this one right here. Who exactly benefits from what Jesus has done for sinners? Which sinners are saved from the wrath to come? John 3.16 reads this way. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It is those who believe in Jesus who are saved from the wrath to come. Now, we might think, we might think, oh, oh, well then, I simply need to agree with the historical facts of the gospel. I I just need to agree that, yes, Jesus is is the Son of God. Yes, He lived a perfect life. Yes, He died on the cross for sinners. Yes, He was raised from the dead. I just need to agree with these historical facts and I'll be saved. The problem with that is that the Apostle James tells us that if if that is our definition of saving faith, then we should expect the demons to be saved because even they have that kind of belief and they shudder because of the wrath to come. That's James chapter 2, verse 19. We see that same kind of faith, that that kind of faith that just agrees with facts about Jesus. We see that same brand of belief in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're told that many Jews believed in Jesus, but by the end of that chapter, that very same chapter, those same Jews who have believed in Jesus, we find them accusing Jesus of being born illegitimately. We find them accusing Jesus of being a Samaritan. Now, them's fighting words among the Jews. We find them accusing Jesus of being demon possessed. And as if that weren't enough, At the very end of the chapter, they pick up stones to stone him to death. In other words, they believed facts about Jesus, but they rejected him as king. They were not saved from the wrath to come. See, there is a brand of faith that can agree with facts about Jesus, and yet the people who hold that kind of belief, they are no more saved from the wrath to come than those who reject those facts altogether. Saving faith is not mere agreement with facts. Jesus characterized true faith, true discipleship as denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and following Him. We, 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 we trust Christ. When we believe savingly, we trust Christ to the extent that we give our lives to Him. We were of, of a, another kingdom prior to our salvation. We were of the kingdom of this world, following the God of this world, following the devil. But in Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, God has called us to his own kingdom and glory. And so now we have a new king and a new allegiance. Saving faith is faith that says, King Jesus alone can save me from the wrath to come. So I place my life and all that I am and have in His hands. And the Bible teaches that that kind of faith alone is faith that saves. Speaking of that kind of faith, Ephesians 2.8 reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The very next verse in Ephesians 2 says, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now we might ask then, as we turn our attention back to these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians 1, why doesn't Paul then express thanks for the faith of the Thessalonians? Why express thanks for their work of faith? I would present to you that it's because faith cannot be seen. But faith produces something that can be seen. And that's why he expresses thanksgiving for their work of faith. See, we, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is faith that produces a lifestyle of godly obedience. And we find this all over the New Testament. You might write down 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us that Jesus died for all, that those who live, that is, that those who are saved, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, the trajectory of the gospel is not just to save us from the wrath to come, but to transform our lives so that we live for Jesus Christ. If we were to read the entire book of 1 John together this morning, we would find evidence over and over and over that this is the way that faith works. Those who believe, who believe savingly, they live differently than they did before they were saved. James chapter 2 shows that the brand of faith that saves is is a faith that is accompanied by something more than agreement with facts. It is a faith that works. It produces obedience. It is the nature of faith to obey. And notice that Paul uses the singular work and not plural works. Commentators have speculated that he uses the singular there because Paul does not have in mind individual activities, but rather he has in mind a lifestyle of following Christ in obedience. True faith in Christ cannot but transform a person over time. Now, now I would give this caveat. We ought not look for perfect works as a sign of faith. A perfect record of obedience is not the evidence of true faith. Now, now we, we may think of, of the Apostle James as being the real hardliner on on the idea that, that faith produces works. Faith produces works. And we may get scared reading the Gospel. Or I'm sorry, reading reading James's letter because we may think, oh, I need this perfect record. But listen, even James says we all stumble in many ways. We, we all still sin, even as believers. It is not perfect obedience that shows our faith. Rather, it is slow, progressive growth in Christ's likeness. This work of faith is a gracious marker of salvation because only those who have been saved have a faith that transforms their lives. Likewise, labor of love is a gracious marker of salvation. I mentioned before that the Gospel tells us about how God redeems those who hated God and one another, transforms them into saints who love God and one another. It, it is characteristic of fallen man to hate God and to hate his fellow man. Even, even to hate his, 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 own, his own brother. Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4, just one chapter after Adam rejected God. But it is love for God and love for man that the Lord continually commands in the Old Testament law. We find Jesus summarizing all of that Old Testament law in, in two commands. Love God and love one another. And yet if we look at the history of Israel and we look at our own record, we find that because of our own fallen hearts, we can't do that. We can't love God. We can't love man. Part of the good news, though, is that in our, by grace, through faith, salvation, God gives us new hearts that love Him and love one another. Pastor Rick read Ezekiel 36 for us this morning, and it tells about these new hearts given to us by God in the New Covenant, whereby we are caused to walk in obedience to God's laws. Again, those laws which Jesus summarized as loving God, loving one another. And only those with these new hearts given by God in the New Covenant can love the way that God, that God commands. But again, just like you can't see faith, you can't see love. And that's why Paul doesn't express thanksgiving for their love, but for their labor of love. It, it, is, it is actually to the labor of love that Jesus refers in John thirteen thirty four when he says this, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, what kind of love did Jesus have? Was it merely an emotional, sentimental love? It was not. It was a laboring love. The laboring love, that word labor here in, in this text means arduous effort and toil. This kind of love is not mere sentimentality or emotion. It's a commitment to the highest good of another that moves us to pour ourselves out for that good. Jesus said, when you love one another like that, everybody's going to know that you're my disciples. Now, why is it that it works that way? Why is it that when we love like that, people know we're his disciples? I would say there's two reasons for that. First of all, only Jesus loves like that. And secondly, only those who are in him can love like that. That's how. That's why people see that when we love like that, we've got to be attached to Jesus. Paul saw that kind of laboring love at work in the Thessalonians initially during those three weeks or so that he spent with them planting that church. He saw it then. And then when Timothy returned to him with his report, he heard about it again. He has seen this gracious marker of salvation and that's why he thanks God for this. The gracious marker of salvation. Paul is also thankful for the gracious marker of their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their steadfastness of hope in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our culture tends to, to demean the word hope and, and to take it down to the level of, of meaning just wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a, is a much better concept. It is, it is the certainty, the certainty of receiving what God has promised. And it is a product of saving faith. Now, Paul writes here that the Thessalonians' steadfastness of hope this is this hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would, I would present to you that there are two components to this hope being in the Lord Jesus Christ. first of all it is in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that Christ's resurrection is the foundation of his hope, his resurrection is the foundation of the hope and secondly his return is the object of that hope. His return is the object of the hope. what I mean by that is that his return is the promise that we know we will receive from the Lord. Now Paul takes those two things that is Christ's resurrection, and our glorious future at Christ's return. And he puts them together in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. You might look there with me. First Thessalonians 4.14. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that because Jesus has life eternal, we have hope, that is we have certainty, that we will have life eternal. Do unbelievers have this? Unbelievers have no hope, according to Ephesians 2.12. Only believers in Jesus Christ have this kind of hope. But like faith and love, you can't see hope. And so Paul expresses thanksgiving for their steadfastness of hope. Or another word that, that, that might mean more to us is the perseverance of hope. See, people who have biblical hope, In the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, because of his resurrection, they know, they know that Jesus is going to return again and it's going to mean an absolutely wonderful future for them because they're certain of this. They are able to live with perseverance that other people cannot live. That's what Paul has seen in the Thessalonians. He has seen them enduring, bearing up under unbelievable pressure in the form of persecution there in Thessalonica. He's seen that gracious marker of salvation in them, and so he thanks the Lord for it. Now, I'd like for us to return for a moment in our minds to the kinds of things that that we tend to express thanksgiving for. First of all, as you think about those things, maybe think about the last thing that you thank the Lord for, maybe this morning. I'll confess to you. I mean, I said out loud this morning as I took my first drink of coffee. The Lord Jesus, thank you for coffee. And that's the chit, right? I mean, as I said earlier, all good things come from the Lord. So let me, let me first say, don't, don't, don't ever feel guilty for thanking the Lord for anything. Don't ever th- feel guilty for thanking Him for anything. Ephesians 5.20 says, be thankful for everything. Express thanks to God for absolutely everything. So don't, don't feel bad if you have thanked God for things other than what we find Paul thanking the Lord for. right? Secondly, I would exhort you to consider the possibility of a broader prayer life which includes this brand of thanksgiving. This this kind of thanksgiving is possible. Paul did it. He prayed like this constantly, the text says. We, We thank God constantly for all of you in this regard, and let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, that doing this, as, as Paul does, this is simply a matter of intentionality. So, let's be intentional, shall we? Let's, let's decide this morning before the Lord, I'm going to work my way through the membership app here at Providence. I'm going to think through the lives represented there. I'm going to thank God for gracious markers of salvation in, in this person's life. And I'm going to be as specific as I can. And then I'm going to thank the Lord for gracious markers of salvation in this person's life. I'm going to be as specific as I can. And listen, this doesn't take tons of time. It really doesn't. You could do, you could do one person a day. Or, or maybe you do all the A's. And then the next day you move, you move and you do all the B's. Or perhaps you're, you're a real renegade and you start with the W's. Paul is, Paul is modeling for us in this letter, setting us an example. And that's going to become even more clear as we proceed through the letter. I mean, he, he intends for us to look at him and do what he's doing. So let's follow his example. And let's thank God for these things, gracious markers of salvation, and our brothers and sisters at Providence Bible Fellowship. Now, I've, I've mentioned already that these are gracious markers of salvation. I haven't said much about that word gracious because it leads naturally to the next question and the next point. Why did Paul thank God for these things? Why did Paul thank God for these things? After all, Paul characterizes these markers as belonging to the Thessalonians. He says, we're, we're thankful for your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Well, Paul thanks God for these things because they come from God. He thanks God for them because they come from God. What else can it mean that he, that he thanks God for them? You know, no one, no one has ever thanked me for, for Pastor Jason setting up the live stream. Nobody's ever thanked, nobody's ever thanked me for anything that Pastor Jason has done. And it would make no sense for them to do so, would it? Paul thanks God for what he sees here because God is the source of these things. Now, obviously, the Thessalonians, they are making volitional choices as they work and labor and persevere. The key thing to understand here is that everything that they are actually doing is empowered by faith, love, and hope given by God. Paul not only thanks God for what they already have in this area, But when he wants to see more of it, he asks God to give it to them. Look at 3.13. Skip down to 1 Thessalonians 3.13. He prays this. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, why would he pray this if love ultimately isn't a work of God in them? God causes us to love. That's part of the gospel message, is it not? It's a blessing of the new covenant. That's why, that's why love is an evidence of our by grace through faith salvation. God causes us to love and he causes the labor that shows that love. We might think, well, certainly faith can't be, can't be a gift from God because it's kind of the doorway into salvation. Well, no, the Bible teaches that even our faith is a gift from God. I referenced Ephesians 2 8 earlier this morning. For by grace you've been saved through faith. The rest of that verse reads this way. This is not your own doing but it is a gift of God. What's a gift of God? That whole thing, your by grace through faith salvation. It is all a gift of God, all of it. Philippians 1:29 teaches that faith is a gift of God. He gives our faith and he causes the work that flows from that faith. Likewise hope is a gift from God. You might write down 1 Peter 1:3. 1 Peter 1:3 he caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He gives us hope and He causes the perseverance that comes from that hope. God is the source of all these things and they are utterly undeserved by us. That's why we call them gracious markers of salvation. They show what God has done in us. So, As we think through that that. wonderful passage there in Ephesians 2. We eventually get to to Paul making this declaration. We are his workmanship. Even our works are his workmanship. There, There are two implications of this idea that I would like to put in front of you this morning. Two implications of this idea that these are gracious markers of salvation. That God is to be thanked for these things. The first is this. Some of us, when when we hear about these gracious markers of salvation, we are moved to a place of either despair because we don't think we see enough of these things in us or we're moved to morbid introspection regarding to what extent we see these markers in ourselves. So we become very inward focused as we think about these markers of salvation. Let me encourage you to focus your mind on and affections on the God who is the source of these things. You see, the the solution to a weak or relatively fruitless faith is not produce faith, produce faith, produce faith, produce works, produce works, produce works, but rather it is abide in Christ, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. I would encourage you to meditate on John 15 to that end because he teaches that there. We are fruitful as we abide in Jesus. That's the first thing. Do not go diving deeply into yourself as a result of the things that we're seeing this morning. Dive deeply into Jesus because He is where that fruit is going to come from. Love Jesus. Secondly, consider the great potential The great potential of every believer in Jesus Christ. You and every other Christian, you know, consider what can happen in you because God is the source of these things. Because God is the source of all work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. There is no limitation to how much we can grow in these things. Many of us, Many of us feel constantly held back by our background, our, our personality type, our, our natural abilities or inabilities. Listen, those things mean nothing to God's ability to grow people in the likeness of Christ. And so so that means that for the husband who habitually abuses his God-given authority by being grossly passive in his home, he, he can be the model of godly leadership in that same home. Why? Why is that possible? Because God is the source of His labor of love. That husband needs only to pursue Jesus and follow Him in obedience with reckless abandon. And the, the teenager struggling to honor God by being sexually pure, who, who, who right this moment, may not be able to even imagine a single day without thinking ungodly thoughts or, or sinning sexually in some way. That teenager can control his or her body in holiness and honor, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.4. Why can they do that? Because God is the source of that perseverance of hope. That teen needs only to pursue Christ. And follow him in obedience with reckless abandon. Paul thanks God for these things because God is the source of these things. And we need to live like God is the source of these things. Chase after Jesus Christ. A third question and answer. Why does Paul thank God for these things? Why does he thank God for these things? And the answer to that question is because he loves the church. He loves the church. We, we are thankful for the things that we find desirable. And that is why, if we're being honest, we find it very difficult to be thankful for all things as we're commanded to do in Ephesians 5.20. We're, we're not usually thankful for things like being in a full body cast or having raw sewage back up into our homes. I mean, those things aren't obviously desirable, right? We're, we're thankful for things that are obviously desirable to us. Now to Paul gracious markers of salvation in the Thessalonians that is obviously desirable to him. Why? Because he loves them. And when, when we love people we really love them. We desire their highest good. And if the Bible is informing our thinking then these gracious markers of salvation should be, in our minds, the highest good of any person. And these markers, salvation, this is not simply good because it's rescue from hell. Now certainly, rescue from hell is, is good. I'm, I'm all about rescue from hell, right? But fellowship with Jesus is the highest good. Fellowship with Jesus is the highest good. And if we love Jesus... And we love people, we'll want them to know Him. And so we'll greatly desire to see these markers of salvation in their lives because it means they know Him and they will know Him forever. So we should also want these things for people. We should also want these things for people because it means that they are becoming like Jesus. When we see these markers of salvation in people, we're seeing them become like Him. And why should we want that? Why should we want people to become like Jesus? Because it's pleasurable to be like Jesus. I mean, look at the Gospels. I think Jesus obviously enjoys being Jesus. I mean, look at Him. He's displaying His working faith and His laboring love and His persevering hope. I mean, Jesus was the most fulfilled and the joyful person who ever lived, and He wants us to have that joy. He talks about it in John 15. I want you you to have my joy. And we have that joy as we abide in him and become like him. We should want that for the believers around us. Paul loves the Thessalonians. And he knows what these markers mean in them. So he's elated to find that they're in the faith. If we love people, we'll rejoice to find them working in the faith and laboring in love and persevering in hope. It's possible for us to recognize these markers in other people's lives and not be thankful. It's quite possible. And that may indicate in us either we don't love Jesus like we should or we don't love people like we should. And so if we would grow in thankfulness for these things, I would, I would put before you that we must do two things. First of all, we must... Pursue greater love for Christ. And to that end, we can do some very practical things. We can med- meditate on His excellencies. Meditate on His love for us. We do that by doing things like walking through the Gospels and looking specifically for His character and love displayed. We, 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 we take time to think deeply about these things. As, as we're reading stories, we're not just looking for facts, but we're looking at, for the character of Christ. What does it mean for Jesus to touch that leper. What does it mean for Jesus to say the things that he says? I recommend to you again the Song of Songs as a, as a picture of the great love of Christ for the church. Think about the love of Christ. Think about the character of Christ. Meditate on these things. Unto greater love for him. And as you're meditating on these things, pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in you to give you greater love for Jesus. And secondly, pursue greater love for his bride. Loving Jesus is going to lead us in that direction, but we should also pray that we would love His bride as well and that we would act it out. We do this not just by trying to stir up affections, but by actually intentionally doing caring things for one another, praying for one another, serving one another. And during these difficult days, that can take on very specific acts. Think about the technology that the Lord has afforded us in these days. And how we might leverage these things to care well for one another. I would encourage you, use that cell phone for something other than bingeing Netflix these days. Get on the phone and call other people in this church. See how they're doing. How you can pray for them. Pray with them. Those who should not be out, should not be out grocery shopping because of their health concerns. Get them on the phone and find out what their grocery list is. Go out and buy their groceries for them. Find ways... To serve other people, and I guarantee you that if you are, if you are pursuing love for Jesus Christ, and then you are intentionally caring for people in the body, you are going to find that your affections follow. You will love people more. And then when you, when you see what Christ is doing in them, it will be natural for you to be thankful for markers of salvation in them. Now as we close, let me, let me sneak one last question in here that I didn't tell you about in the beginning. One final question. Why does Paul tell the Thessalonians that he's thankful for these things? He's not just thankful for these things, but he tells them that he's thankful for them. Why would he do that? Why not just be silently thankful before the Lord, pray for the Lord, and not tell them about it? It's because we find in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he has the heart of a father to exhort and encourage them. He wants to exhort and encourage them. It is encouraging to hear from others. I thank God for what I see Him doing in you. Now, some of us are afraid to say something like that because we fear sowing seeds of pride in the hearer. I would exhort you, put that concern aside. When phrased correctly, things like I thank God for what I see him doing you phrased correctly like that. Those kinds of statements to one another do several things. First of all, those kinds of statements, they turn our eyes to him, not to ourselves. Secondly, they remind us of what really matters. Thirdly, they stir our affections for the Lord because we are reminded by this person encouraging us. These things are true of me because God has been kind to me. And so I I would simply add here that as we thank God for these things in one another, that we also take the time to communicate our thankfulness to one another without worrying that a pride problem is going to develop in the hearer. This is a biblical way of encouraging one another and pointing one another to the Lord. Before we end, let me just address those who may be watching online, maybe here in the room with us. And you have, n- you have no evidence of these markers of salvation whatsoever. In fact, you, you, you know that you don't have a relationship with the Lord, perhaps. You've, you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. Let me just say to you that you are in a bad situation. In fact, it would be difficult for us to to convey the dire peril that, that you are facing because you have that heart problem that I mentioned a few moments ago. That heart problem is just churning out sin. It's churning out rebellion against the Lord. And you cannot solve the problem that that causes. It has separated you from God. It separated you from God in this life. You are unable to function the way human beings are designed to function. That is, in in fellowship with God. So it's causing problems for you right now. Worse, it is separating you from God eternally so that when you die, you will spend eternity under His wrath, which is the just penalty for your sin, the just penalty for my sin. Every sinner deserves that that penalty. There is only one hope for sinners, and it it is the perfect life And the sinless death of Jesus Christ substituted for us. The way that sinners are benefited by Jesus' perfect life and His atoning death, we're benefited by this by turning away from our sin, that is, repenting and saying, I don't want this life anymore, but I just want Jesus. I want Jesus to be my King. I want to give Him my life. I trust in Him alone to make me right with God. I would say to you, those of you present this morning, if any questions about that, please don't leave this place with those questions. You must get those questions answered. We would love to talk to you. If you're watching via live stream, you can comment in the, into this video saying I would like to talk to somebody or you can message our, our Facebook page and somebody will contact you. We would love to talk to you, but please do not let the sun go down today without having those questions answered. The gospel is the greatest message of deliverance in the history of mankind. And those who turn their back on it are doomed. Those who respond in repentance and faith will have life eternal with Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to observe a moment of silence as we reflect on the things that the Lord has brought before us before we close our our service. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for our by grace through faith salvation. We recognize before You, Father, that if we see these markers in our lives, it is only because of Your great kindness to us. We brought to the table nothing but sin. We were hopeless in ourselves. But You, because of Your great love, sent Your Son to redeem us not just to redeem us, not just to give us new hearts that we might not be doomed for eternity, but to transform us, to cause us to walk in faith and obey, and to cause us to labor in love for one another and for you, and to cause us to persevere in the hope of returning Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things because you are the source of these things. We praise you, thank you, and we ask, Father, that you would grant us to grow in love for one another in such a way that as we see these markers of salvation in the church, that we would reflexively express thanksgiving to you for them. And Lord, let us build one another up by telling one another, we're thankful, thankful, thankful to you for what you're doing in our lives. Father, if there are those here, those watching who don't know you, we pray that you would bring conviction upon them that You would be kind to bring that burden, that weight of sin to their consciousness, that they would see that they have no hope outside of Jesus Christ, that You would open their eyes to see His beauty, You would grant them repentance and faith, that they might be saved, Father. We ask these things in His name. Amen.